Would you now, out of respect for God's word, please remain standing as I read today's sermon text, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the inspired word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that he that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord God, thank you for your word, but thank you especially for your son to whom that word points, who is that word incarnate. Thank you for Christ Jesus, whom we celebrate and worship today. We pray that you would stir in our hearts devotion for him. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, our, our sermon text was printed in your bulletin as it is normally. We've got a notes page for you there as well. Um, it, it might be handy for you to keep your Bible open today, if, if, if you like, because we are going to be jumping around from, from kind of one text to another. Uh, so I just give you fair warning there. Uh, we continue our sermon series on Jesus, the true and better. Right? We looked two weeks ago at Jesus as the true and better Adam. Last week we saw him as the true and better Abraham, and this week we looked to the fact that Jesus is indeed the true and better Moses. Now you all know that I'm a, a big baseball fan and, and as I was thinking about this sermon, baseball inevitably came to mind. It usually does for me. That's how it works. But in 1973, Hank Aaron was pursuing Babe Ruth's career home run record. Uh, he got very, very close, fell just short of reaching it and was actually one home run short going into the offseason. So the record would have to wait till the next season. That offseason, Hank Aaron received all sorts of mail, not fan mail like you would expect, but rather hate mail. Mail that, that was of the most vile sort, threatening him if he would even dare to try to break the record of the great Babe Ruth. It wasn't the first time this type of sentiment had been raised in the hearts of baseball fans. Uh, there, there had been some 12 years earlier, uh, the single season home run race, wherein Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's record of 60 home runs in a season. Throughout that season, he faced similar obstacles of people not wanting him to break the record of the great Babe Ruth. He 
talked about it later about how throughout the season he was literally losing his hair and how it was just a, a terrible thing to have to go through. And, and, and when Hank Aaron set the record, he said similarly, I just thank God that it's done. We don't like to have people outdo our heroes, do we? Those, those who we love and adore, we, we don't like to see them surpassed. And we see in today's text and in today's topic the idea of, of a similar thing happening. Right? We need to understand that, that Moses, to the audience who first received this letter, this letter to the Hebrews, right? They were first century Jews, of course. They came from a Jewish culture, a Jewish background. They had a Jewish history, a Jewish understanding of things. And to those who have this background and understanding in this culture, Moses was as great a person as one could be. He was the superstar of all superstars. He was the Babe Ruth of the Old Testament. But now there was one who had come along who had surpassed him. He, of course, is Christ Jesus, the Lord. For as great as Moses was in leading them out of Egypt and delivering God's law to them in the Ten Commandments and in writing the first five books of the Bible, we see still that, that even as he was such a big deal, Jesus is a bigger deal yet. Right? And, and this shouldn't have surprised them. They should have known that there was another one coming. Moses himself had told them as much in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you, <clears throat> will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Peter, in Acts 3, speaking at Solomon's portico, quotes this same passage. Stephen, right before he is being stoned, quotes the same passage as well. You can see people weren't too excited about it if, after all, they were stoning Stephen at this point. Even though Moses had told them that the Messiah, the Christ, was one to come who would outdo even himself. But this author of Hebrews now has given us this message today that we've looked at, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. And in the first verse, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I want to look at three quick things real quick in this verse. When he says holy, he's talking about being set apart for God. So you who are set apart for God, holy brothers. We need to understand that the Greek word that stands behind this is actually uh, not a gender-specific word. It's the word for brothers, but, but when it's plural, if it's boys and girls, it, it's the same word. Use, we we uh, have the word siblings, perhaps, could have been used there uh, to, to be more technically precise or, or whatever. But, uh, and then finally, so you, brothers and sisters, who are wholly set apart by God, who share in a heavenly calling, who have been called by God, right? So what he's saying in this verse, who he's talking to, he's talking to Christians, right? He's talking to us. He's talking to those who, who have trusted in Christ Jesus. And he says, consider Jesus. Consider him, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
Now, it's interesting that Jesus is called an apostle here. We don't normally see him referred to as an apostle. We usually think of his 12 followers, right, that, that were the apostles. But what we need to understand, again, is that this word apostle means one who is sent, right? It's, it's somebody who's a, a representative or, or even we could say an ambassador, right? Because it's somebody who's, who's sent not just to go do a job, but to actually speak on behalf of another person, right? If, if you were the ambassador to England, you might speak to the prime minister, you might speak to the queen, right? But, but you don't get to just pontificate on your own thoughts, right? You don't get to share what you think would be the best way of doing things. You take the thoughts of the president, right? You, you're speaking on his behalf as an ambassador, and that's the idea of of an apostle and so so when it says an apostle it's someone who is sent to speak on behalf of God to the people of God right and that's what Moses did indeed he spoke to the people on behalf of God and that's what Christ Jesus of course does he comes not just speaking the word but as the very word himself he he preached the gospel of the kingdom remember in Luke 4 what happens when Jesus begins his ministry? He goes to the synagogue and he has them pull out the, the, uh, the scroll with the prophet Isaiah. And, and this is the very beginning of his ministry. He reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? He, he has come to, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He says he, he comes to proclaim that it is breaking into our broken and fallen world. It is entering in and through him. In fact, he brought this good news to different places, and, and at first they, they liked it so much, they, they said, well, well, stay here and keep telling us. He said, no, I, I actually have to preach the good news of the kingdom to, to other towns as well. And so he had to go on to other places. He was an apostle in this sense, bringing the word of God to the people in much the same way as Moses had done. He's also a, a high priest, right? He's our apostle and high priest. Uh, the high priest stands between God and man also. But, but his job isn't so much to, to take the word of God to man, but rather to stand between God and man and, and to provide sacrifice, to provide atonement for the sins of the people. So he approaches God on behalf of the people. right? And so he was the one who brought the sacrifices that, that atoned for their sin. And so Jesus is not just the one who brings the sacrifices, but he actually is the sacrifice, right? He, he brings the sacrifice, which is himself before God. And so he stands between God and man as this mediator, right? The high priest and apostle going both directions so that he is the one true mediator, right? Not Mary, not the saints, not even Moses, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. That's what Paul says to Timothy. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Indeed, Moses did fulfill this role in, in a sort, in, as a type, right, or a, a pattern pointing us to Christ, but ultimately 
Christ is the one who, who fulfilled this role. But there is this correlation between Moses and Jesus because he was a type or a pattern for Jesus. And we see uh, here that, that Jesus right, is, is the high priest, the apostle, the high priest of our confession, who was faithful, verse 2 tells us, to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And that's the first point in your outline, right? There's a couple of blanks there you might see. Jesus is faithful as Moses was faithful. We see here, again, that Moses was a type of Christ, setting that pattern. And if we think about it, it really becomes kind of clear, doesn't it? To us, when we think about Moses and who he was and what he did, remember, Moses, the story starts with him as a baby, and, and there happens to be a king at the time who is, who is a murderous king. And he demands what? That all of the young baby boys who are Jewish be killed, right? And, and Moses is, is saved from this and ultimately enters into the royal family as a result. But he, he doesn't stay in the royal family. He doesn't cling to his royal status, but actually turns his back on it. He leaves it behind. He spends 40 years in the wilderness. He returns as a prophet, proclaiming the good news of deliverance to his people he performs miracles, not just as magic tricks, but rather to demonstrate that the word of God, or what he is saying is the word of God, that he is speaking on God's behalf. These miracles he brings, right? right? We, we think of the, the plagues that exist in, in Exodus 7 through 12. Uh, there's the, the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Uh, Exodus 15 brings us bitter water being turned to sweet. And then Exodus 16, where he brings bread from heaven in the form of manna. Exodus 17, he brings water from the rock. These miracles that he brings forth. Then he, he, he actually leads his people out of slavery. He delivers them from death. And yet, even so, the people grumble and they doubt. They disbelieve. They chase after other gods. And he, knowing his people's fickleness of faith, still identifies with them, still steps forward as their covenantal representative, still intercedes for them, even at great personal cost. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Think of Moses with his intercession for the people of God in Exodus 32, right? He's, he's just led them out and, and things are good. And he goes up to meet with God and down below the people are fashioning a golden calf to worship. And God says to him, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a golden calf they said, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. You can see how that might have been appealing to Moses. You know, he, he's done so much, and they, 
they keep complaining and grumbling and now worshiping this idol that they fashioned. Maybe it would be better, Lord, if you just started over with me and we could not have to deal with all that. But that's not how he responded. Instead, we see that Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and shall, they shall inherit it forever. Right? And, and we see when he does come down, Moses comes down and says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go back up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he returns to the Lord and, and says, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Right? He says he so identifies with them he, he is willing to take the punishment with them. He, he is their covenantal representative. He stands in the gap before God on their behalf, even though he was not the one who was sinful in his ways. It's similar to what we see in Numbers chapter 12. There we see Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, talking bad about him. You know, because Moses is kind of getting all the credit here. You know, and we're working hard too. And, and, and he's like the one who gets all the headlines. And, and we're just kind of here as also rants. And, and, and so then they speak ill of him, specifically about the woman that he had married. And the Lord heard it. And we read that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And they came out, and the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, or face to face, as we would say. Clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And we read that, that when the cloud removed from the tent, when the Lord departed and went up, they beheld, and Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned to Moses and said, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly in sin. Let her not be as one who is dead, whose flesh is half eaten away. What does Moses do? Well, he could have said, well, you know, play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? That's not what he did. What does he do but he, at that time, even though he was the one who was wronged, and they were the ones who had done it, he cries out to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. Right, he comes before the Lord on behalf of his sinning sibling. 
and stands in the gap for her. Miriam had been struck with leprosy. Moses intercedes. She receives forgiveness and is brought back into the fold. It's a great thing for those who call Jesus their brother to know this truth, that he does the same thing, that he stands before God in the gap for us, even at great cost. Moses is a wonderful example of this, 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 this unselfish faithfulness, right? He's willing to endure hardship. He's willing to forsake what was rightly his as vengeance and instead seeks forgiveness for those who have sinned against him. I saw a video yesterday, maybe, maybe you've seen it as well. It was a video from the funeral of Richard Houston. He is a police officer who was shot and killed in Dallas, uh, suburban Dallas area um, just a week or two ago. And his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, was speaking at his funeral. And I speak now as one who spoke at my own father's funeral. It's a hard thing to do under the best of circumstances. I can hardly imagine doing it under the circumstances in which she did. What she said, though, was even more impressive than the feat of actually speaking. These are the words I heard her say. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find myself find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. She went on to say, her, her voice trembling, the tears streaming down her face, her nose sniffling as she spoke. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. She was primarily concerned with this man's eternal well-being when he had committed such a crime and such a sin and such a heinous act to bring pain to her. This is clearly a, a heart that has been touched by the love of Jesus, right? Kind of like Moses was standing in the gap and how Jesus has done this even more so, right? We see it in Jesus, the very fact that he took on human flesh, the very fact that he submitted to death, even death on the cross, the very, the very fact that he proclaimed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And for all these reasons and more, the author to the Hebrews writes in verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's the next point on your outline there, that next fill in the blank. Jesus is worthy of more glory 
than Moses. This is in no way to minimize the glory that Moses deserves, right? He, he, he was wonderful. He was amazing, just like Babe Ruth. Incredible. And yet someone came along who did more, who was better. Right? This for a number of reasons. First, just consider the fact of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 34. That's at the end of the first five books of the Bible. It's the end of that story of Moses. Basically, God takes him up on top of the mountain, shows him the promised land, says, there it is, that's where it will be. And then Moses dies, and God buries him. And says, well, Moses had a long life, but then he died. You see, the intercession that Moses brought lasted for his lifetime. And then it ended, and it's done. But Jesus, well, he died too, didn't he? But he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead. He, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, to his apostles, to over 500. He ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God. And we read now in Hebrews 7, that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for, for them. Right? Jesus lives eternally. He intercedes eternally. Moses only for a time, but Jesus forever. His intercession is greater and so the glory due to him is greater. Right? So, so who is it to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us now. Brothers and sisters, this should bring you great comfort and joy that Christ Jesus is interceding for you even now, this moment. He is pleading before the throne of the Father for you. I'm reminded of the, the words of Robert Murray McShane, the 19th century Scottish preacher, he, he said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And this will never not be so. Right? And so our joy should be bound up in this. And, and, and Christ is worthy of glory, more glory, not just because this intercession is eternal, but, but because the very nature of it is beyond and, and above and beyond and much greater magnitude, but also just of a whole different type than that of Moses. Right? It's not just a matter of being a little bit better or even a lot better. It's a complete apples and oranges comparison. Right? Hebrews 11 is the great passage that, that speaks of the faith that Moses had, but if we, we compare the two, we don't really have time to look at it right now, but, but if you compare the, the faithfulness of Moses and then think about Jesus and, and his comparison of how he was faithful, you'll quickly see how each step along the way, the faithfulness of Christ Jesus is, is many magnitudes greater. For he Ultimately, at the end of that passage, we see, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them, right? 
But we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Jesus is our Passover lamb, right? He, he actually is, as John said it, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as a result, we have propitiation by his blood, Romans 3.25. We've now been justified from the wrath of God by his blood, Romans 5.9. We have been reconciled to God and now have peace with God by his blood, Colossians 1.20. We have eternal redemption by his blood, Hebrews 9.12. We have been freed from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1, verse 5. You see, it truly is that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It can all be kind of summed up in verses 3 and 4, can't it? Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Right? For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now the, the house that he's talking about, of course, we see in verse 6 is, is the people of God. It's us, right? It's not a building, it's the household, right? We are being built up, as Peter says, into, into a holy spiritual house. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? So, so the author of Hebrews here is identifying Jesus with God. Do you see that? He's saying he is God. Right? Moses was a servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God. Moses, uh, uh, Alistair Begg puts it perfectly. He says, Moses was a faithful messenger. Jesus himself is actually the message. Moses was a faithful servant in the house. Jesus is the owner of the house. Moses loved God. Jesus is God. And so finally, the third point in our outline, Moses, whereas Moses was a servant, Christ, Jesus, is a son what we see Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son right Moses serves serves the house of God but Jesus owns the house of God so Moses shows us a part but Jesus shows us the whole right and so so we see that passage that we read together in the Houston scripture reading a little bit ago right for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? The law condemns us. It, it shows us the holiness of God. It, it shows us the way we ought to go, but it has no power to save. The salvation of God comes through Christ Jesus by his grace. It comes through Christ Jesus. And we see it there at the cross where, where his righteousness is demanded and yet his grace is poured out. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Just a few verses later, we'd see that right after that, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the first at Father's side. He has made him known. Right? It says that Moses never even saw him. Remember, Moses was given a, a glimpse of the backside of God's glory as he passed by. But the blessing of being a believer in Christ Jesus is we are given a glimpse of the glory of God. Right? We see it in the most humble of births. 
We see it in the most common of lives. We see it in the most brutal of deaths. And we see it now as he inhabits his people, as we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him to the glory of God. So as the author of Hebrews said in verse 1 of our text, consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Look to Jesus. Look to the eyes that wept for you. Look to the the thorn-pricked brow that bled and sweat for you. Look to the eternally nail-pierced hands that are held open to you, bidding you to come to him. For our sight of Jesus now is somewhat obscured, but he will return. He will set all things to rights, including us. We will be changed, and we will see him face to face. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. So hold fast your confidence and your boasting in our hope, and look forward to that day. Hunger for it. Hunger for it so much that you can taste it. And live today as if it is already here. For as believers, in a sense for us, it already is. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your sure promise that Christ Jesus will return. Thank you that all things will be set to rights. Thank you that we can have joy in the here and now because that day, though, in the future is a certainty as much as if it were already accomplished. So give us that joy, that joy that looks to you, that joy that celebrates not only the first advent of Christ, but the second advent as well. And may we rejoice always in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.